and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values and listening across our differences. Every week, I speak to someone who has some kind of public platform, often someone who has experience of one of the many divides we draw between human beings. I try and understand the stories that have shaped them and how they've got to where they are now. I'm interested in the unconscious, semi-conscious ethics and principles that drive us and the way they clash. The stories we tell about ourselves and about other people and particularly other groups and ultimately in growing myself in empathy and understanding in these divided times. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Dante Stewart. Dante is an American writer and church leader. His journalism has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Time, among many others. And his most recent book is Shouting in the Fire, an American epistle. We spoke about his Southern Pentecostal childhood, his experiences in a white majority church, parenting while black, and much more. As usual, there are some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. I am shortly going to kick off, Dante, with asking you what you hold sacred, which is not your classic icebreaker, easy question. And it's designed to be something, I think, that stops us in our tracks because I'm not sure any of us immediately know, but I hope it's a generative question because I'm really interested in the deep values that drive people, the deep principles that we're trying to live by, and often how different they are from each other and how helpful it can be to surface them in order to build some empathy and some understanding and some some sense of each other as these incredibly complex, beautiful human beings. But I'm going to give you a minute's reprieve for asking what you hold sacred to a tiny warm up, which is just how do you get on with the word? Do you, do you are you drawn to it? Does it yeah. repel you? Does it feel spiky? How does it how does it sit with you? Yeah, I- immediately when I think of sacred. I think of like pressing into something or sort of type of depth, but then also a sort of type of spontaneity. Hmm. But then also when I think about that word sacred, like the immediate image that comes to my mind is myself and my family, my children, my mother, my father, my my, my grandmother, my brothers and sisters, my brother, my brothers and sister and cousins. Like I think about, the everyday of life, the mundanity of life, the kind of like everyday joy of life. But then also like in this season of life, sacred to me is also about being able to live with the grief and what not just holds grief, but what grief holds as well. And so like, as I think about the word sacred, like, yeah, my mind goes there. I think about like also the James Webb telescope images like I want to go dance among the stars and kind of get lost in the stars. And I think about how, like, like, like I was talking to my wife the other day and I'm like, yo, it's no way possible that we are alone in this thing we call universe. And I'm like, my plausible, my plausible argument is that there is one livable planet, each galaxy. That's easier for me to believe, you know, and there, there's something about sacred about like the question and, and, and remaining open to the questions of life and the depth of the question and pursuit of the question and and things like that. So I'm hearing these themes of 
yourself in this kind of beautiful constellation of your family and something about depth in the everyday, you know, that tension that's so creative between the normal things of life that then just drop through into what's profound on such a regular basis. How do you think those sacred values, those threads have led you? How do you think they've shaped your decisions? Can you point to points in your life where you're like, okay, because these things are sacred to me, I did this or not that, or I wish I'd done this and not that? Yeah. When I, when I think about that, I immediately, you know, think about like the younger me, you know, my, my son, he's, he's, he just turned four. He had a birthday yesterday and I wrote a letter and really have been writing it. I haven't finished it yet. It's, it's not to where I want to be just yet. You know, I, I started writing a letter to him, not for him to read at four years old, but for him to read at like 14. But to think about like, what was his daddy thinking about him when his daddy was 30 and he was four. It's like 10, 12 years later, his daddy is 42. And now he's like 14, 15, 16. And like thinking about like, okay, what would I want? for my son. And, and, and a lot of those questions are wrapped up in like regret and, and, and things I've learned and, and, and the challenges I've faced and even like the remaining open to the power of self reinvention. You know, when I think about my life over these last years, especially from college to today, I have lived a lot. I mean, I've gone through a lot. I have experienced a lot. And if I'm thinking about like how that word sacred, you know, has has led me here, I never really had a framework for the sacred or like what is most real and even what is what does sacred even mean to each one of us. And if I had to like try and put a definition to it, it is like the thing in our own hearts that we hold most dear and deeply. You know, and the thing also that we are most afraid of. So like it's a polarity. Like like when you think about things that are sacred, you want to protect them. You want to make sure that they have longevity. You want to make sure that they are given the best you have to offer in any other day. But then also it is the fear of losing that thing. So when I think about my child, I think about him growing up in this world and even the ways in which me and my wife have to talk about like our experiences as people living in America right now and even the stories that we have inherited from our uh, grandparents and parents, like that is a challenging thing. Like I, I am afraid that things will be lost, whether that's like culture, whether that's like artifacts that made us, whether that's like the stories that have given us ideas of freedom and what matters and the intuitive things that have made us who we are and what we've done with it, how we've, you know, taken what we have been given and made it black in this world and made it us and made it ours. And like, I don't think I've ever had a framework for that. But then like, as I've gotten older, the older I get, the less I'm concerned about like arguing or proving or being something to other people or trying to be whatever to whoever. And the more I'm concerned about, okay, like, yo, what is it that you got? What is it that you have that, like, you want to give somebody else? 
And I've really been struggling with that in this season, if I can just keep it 100 with you. Like, this has been a hard season of, like, trusting myself. When I think about, like, what led me here, I think about that intuition, that discipline, that belief, mm. that grit, that, 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 that self-reinvention, that, like, learning how to live with what I lose, but also learning how to live with what I got. Like, I think about that as sacred is that like education is about what others want to give to you. Intuition is about what you have already in yourself that must be brought out. And so I think about this letter that I write to my son and like what I want and how how it led me here, I think is that. It's life. It's failure. It's regret. It's finding myself and losing myself and finding it again and figuring out how to do that every single day yeah. and getting better at it with each week. How much is it modeled on um, Baldwin's letter letter to my nephew? Whew. Yo, I'm actually glad you went there because like that, <laughs> how much is my letter to my son knowing, modeled after knowing that? Knowing you love Baldwin, I assumed it was part of your mental Oh, oh yeah. Oh, 100%. Like literally, I just pitched that I literally just pitched that to Esquire. It was like, yo, I wrote this letter to my son and it's like Baldwin's letter to his nephew. Yes, it is. Uh, so it's the same feel. So I think, I think, yeah, like, like so much of my letter to my son is modeled after that because I think that letter that Baldwin wrote to his nephew was not about perfection. It wasn't about the answers to life. It wasn't even about like guiding his nephew into the future where he is like free. But it was like, I, nephew, this is what I've learned. This is what I've been given. And I want you, once you leave this letter, to ask better questions. Like, it's the question, like, that matters in this moment between this intimate son, between this this intimate moment between a, 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 uh, I was about to say a father, which in some sense he was fathering this this young kid. Like he was he was trying to let him like let him know like yo, like there are some things that I've learned about your family that you don't know yet, but I want to introduce you to. You you don't know your father like I know him. You don't know how afraid your father is not of not just simply of the world, but of himself. And there be going going to become moments where you see yourself. And you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see what the world tells you. And you're going to be afraid of yourself as well. And what you're going to do with it. There are going to be moments where you are so angry at the situation that you have been forced into. That you are going to question, is love even possible? And I'm going to have to bring you back to the family and realize and and let you realize that like, yo, love out there may be confused, but love in here is committed. There are going to be moments where you meet people who see you as less than and they're going to like see you as inferior. But remember, what they do and what they make you endure, it's not about your inferiority that you are less than, that you don't have, that you don't, that, 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 that you don't, that you don't possess a certain type of creativity, brilliance and beauty that's worthy of the best things in life. No, it's about them. And there's going to be moments where you're going to have to remind yourself and kill the noise Mm -hmm. and say that it's not about 
them. It's about me mm. and what I hold. I got enough. Yeah. And there are going to be moments where your country want to celebrate freedom every July 4th or every Freedom Day, wherever the country celebrated. And you need to question, are we celebrating too early? Yeah. And when I think about that, I guess like my letter to my, and that's why I haven't been able to finish it yet. Thank because you. everything I just said about the nephew I am feeling. Yeah. The noise isn't killed in my life. I don't know how to ask the right questions. I don't trust myself. And I'm trying to find out how to do it. Yeah. And so I guess I need to face it and finish it. And so maybe I need to be like James and say like, yo, just write. Just show up. Mm-hmm. Just do it. You ain't got to save your son. All you got to do is love him. <laughs> He'll save himself. I could talk to you about James Borden all day, and I really hope uh, to come back to it. But I want the listeners to just get a bit of a sense of your story and where you've come from before we land back there. So I ask every guest about the formative ideas in their childhood. And I speak to people from very wide backgrounds, perspectives, religions, no religion. Um, So you can take this wherever you like. But is there a religious or philosophical or political idea that was really formative in your childhood. And through that, just give us a little picture of young Dante running around in what has been, oh. I think, called the Corridor of Shame in South Carolina. That seems like a terrible oh, thing yeah. to call a place. So there's this image that I have. It's in my journal. And I carry this image everywhere I go. And I'm like 14, 15, 16. Is it you in the front 14. of the photo there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Right there. But there there is this image, and I go back to this often. A young man, a deck of cards, lying, having fun, faking it until I actually make it. And I realized that I never could have imagined what cards I would have been dealt in life. But eventually that young kid will learn how to play and realize that you just might lose, but you just might win. And that's from childhood. Yeah. I grew up in a place, like you said, that those in South Carolina called the Corridor of Shame. And I was listening to a documentary from back in the day of on the area I grew up in. And like the the documentarian was 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 panning like these kids and showing us in like these trailers and showing our area. And he was like, yo, like, when would these kids ever, you know, imagine, can they even dream of being an athlete? Can they even dream of being an artist? Can they even dream of being a writer? And when I saw that, I was like, yo, and it was like last year sometime or maybe two years ago, I was like, yo, yeah, we can. We can't imagine. Why? Because I've seen others do it. I've seen people like my friend Alshon Jeffrey go to University of South Carolina and make it to the league. People like Mike Coulter come from our area and go be an actor. People like Viola Davis, who from our town that we claim, even though she went up north like so many black people, we still claim Viola. She is still ours. She goes on to be one of the best actors in this world. 
And I write down these affirmations and I wrote down this affirmation. Corridor of shame? Nah, I walked through it and I became a writer. And you ask about like, are there religious and philosophical ideas of my youth? Yes. Where did I learn that? I learned it in the Pentecostal church. There's another image of me as a young 10-year-old I have on a brown suit. And as a young kid, I used to be in front of the church air guitaring to the music. And I thought about like this idea that this one university asked me to come speak on about risk. And so then I started asking my mama. I called my mom and I was like, mom, was there ever a moment in time where you knew I was like different, you know, or like, I got something about me that's just like, yo, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what this dude going to do or what he going to be, but he going to be something. So I wasn't trying to like boost my head or anything like that, but I was trying to find myself, trying to go back to my childhood and figure out what was it about like this environment, this, this, what people call the corridor of shame. That's what they called it. What was it about our environment that made me who I was? And my mama reminds me of being like this young kid up in front, risking it all. You know, you can you can face a lot of rejection in Pentecostal churches, you know, even though everybody jumping up, you know, you going out in front and things like that. People like, nah, nah, go back, little kid, go back to your seat and go sit down. But nah, it was just something intuitive about like, yo, I belong up front. Mm -hmm. And that's a risk because... When you feel like you belong up front, you belong at the top, there's also so much insecurity about it. Because also belonging up front and at the top can also be like this kind of coping mechanism of what you feel you don't have or what you can't attain or what you most afraid of losing. Yeah. But then I'm so glad that the young that the Pentecostal church that I grew up in never put me down. They never said, sit down, child they also believe that I belong there as well. And I think that that is the religious idea, is that there is something beautiful about this one little life that God has made. And even though we as a community will fail that little life again and again and again and again, we at least do believe that that one little life belongs up front, yeah. on stage, in the limelight with a mic in his hand and other kids belong there as well. Mm -hmm. And if kids can believe that enough, when they do walk into a place where they call it the corridor of shame, they will realize that they got God with them and they don't just got God, but they got something else. And that's called audacity. Mm -hmm. They got the audacity to believe that whatever other people say about them, whatever other people believe about them, it's going to come. But then, you got audacity. Yeah. You got your family. You got God. You got you got you got who you are. You got what you've been given. And that's my that's my that's my upbringing. That's that's why I think about like those like ideas that I've been given that like you're worthy to dance. Yeah. Like like there is something about faith that should be expressive. There's something about life that like even when you come from like these menial jobs and you come from this racist world, this sexist, this homophobic world uh, and things like that, that when you encounter God and you encounter us, there should be a sort of type of freedom. Mm. And the sad part is 
that oftentimes that freedom comes with transaction in Pentecostal churches. That that freedom, you must be this certain type of person in order to experience that freedom. And so they're also a part of like where I grew up that I'm like, nah, I need to reinvent that. I need to reshape that. I need to rethink that. But it did at least give me the audacity to believe that I can do anything. I can be anything. I can go anywhere. And even if I don't reach it today, at some point I will. And even if I don't ever reach it, wherever I'm at is going to be the best place anyone can ever land. Yeah. You write so beautifully about um, that the influence of Pentecostalism on your childhood and the kind of beauty and grit and reckoning with suffering and struggle that you received in your childhood. And obviously a big part of that was the context that you were still living in, are still living in, and the context that your grandparents, particularly growing up in the South, um, had lived through. I think what your book gave me as someone who I hope, you know, has been trying to educate myself on the realities of life um, for people of color, the sort of, it felt like that it moved from the intellectual to the experiential. Could you just say a little bit about mm. that sentence mm. of threat, which it feels to me like just, you had this beautiful family life of joy and beauty and creativity mm. and the presence of God that stalked around the edges by a sense of a mm. world that was not safe and violence mm. that your parents were trying to train you to avoid. Could you say mm. a bit more about that? Mm. Yeah, I, I think so many of our, like, especially being Black in this country, there's a part of, like, you want to protect your children from, from the world you know at some point they're going to experience. So you want to give them as much as they can of your world and of yourself as a sort of type of armor, as a sort of type of way out before they experience that. But you don't want to, like, keep them ultimately away from it. So you, 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 you try to, like, keep them away from, like, the assault and give them the artifact. So, like, when I think about my mother and my father, as young as when we was kids, they would always, whenever we go visit a different place, like, we would always find the museums on history, particularly on, like, black history, particularly on, like, let's say we go into D.C., we go into every single museum that's in D.C., like, every historical museum. If, if we're in Tennessee, we're finding, like, the black-owned places. We're finding, like, the museum. We're finding, we're finding something about us in that place. And I think about the power of that. Like, even as a child, even though I didn't have, like, the framework and language for that, I did, I was given, like, a kind of alternate definition of what it means to be black in this country. And so, like, my parents, they, they, they tried to keep us protected um, from those assault. But like at the end of the day, like I said earlier, I can't save my son. I can only give him the right type of questions. And if anything I wish would have happened is that I would have been able to ask more questions. I wish we would have been able to talk more about like their lives. Like even as a writer right now, it's so hard to get my family to talk about their lives. Like, I, a part of it is like, yo, 
they don't want to go back there because it's like they grew up in a generation where like, yo, you don't talk about your problems. You kind of get to the work. You do it like there's not a certain type of emotional heart softness that is seen as an emotional good. Like that is seen as like a vulnerability that is too much of a weight to carry because it gets you off track on like what you got to do every day. So I don't got time to think about this guy. I got to go provide for the family. I got to go check in. I got to clock in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so me, like having children now, I started asking more questions. Like, yo, I wish like back in the day, like we would have been able to like, 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 like not just like watch the documentaries, but like be immersed in them. Not just like see the books, but like have a conversation about the books. So like my mother is an avid reader. Like, I mean, all these books I got in my background, like all these black books, this whole section, like it's black books right here. This whole kind of back section is like black books and and things like that. My mama done read most of them. <laughs> like she, she, done, she, she, she is an avid reader and an, 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 an amazing, incredible storyteller because of the literature that she holds within herself. Like, like she, she didn't just like visit the library, like the library lives within her. And so therefore, like for me as a writer and as a speaker, as a minister, as a pastor, so much of like, you know, what I do, what I feel is a reflection of my mother and my father and them kind of immersing me in this kind of world of literature and things like that. But it's so hard even now to get it out of her. I'm like, yo, you read all the books. Like, I wish you would have sat me down and talked to me earlier, you know, about it. And of course, like, we got time right now, and now it's not too late, thank God. But then I think about, like, if I was able to not be so protected from the world, to not be able to risk what it means to be, like, audacious. Like, like why should audacity only be confined to the front of the church and not in the front of the world? So I can be up front in the church and play my guitar, but then, like, Oh, don't go out and protest like that. No, 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 no. Don't ask the question. Like, like you, we, we can't really talk about those things because it's like too hard. And so like a part of me has to be like honor and respect that. But then a part of me kind of like regrets that and wish that like, yo, I wish y'all wouldn't have protected like us from that. Because when you do become a writer, when you do become this type of person who who has been tasked with dealing with the soul of a person, the soul of a people, the soul of a nation. You need more than your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. You need others to open up and you like Toni Morrison, translate that into meaning. And if that opening up don't happen, that work is going to be a little bit harder. So I'm trying to be a little bit better with my kids uh, in that, like giving them of myself much, much earlier. Yeah. There's this scene in your book where you are, I think, a student at the time and driving home entirely legally on a normal night, <laughs> minding your own entirely legitimate business and um, get pulled over by a cop and call your mom. And I can, the threat, the threat that you are in in that moment is so vivid. The sense that... Mm-hmm. A wrong move, a wrong word, a misunderstanding could mm-hmm. be the end of your life. And mm-hmm. I cried very hard through that scene. <laughs> I'm going to cry again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that sense that, you know, they knew that if you went running in certain neighborhoods at certain times of night because you're an athlete and you needed to do some exercise, that that could end in trouble. You know, you and your siblings got shot at by a white guy and the judge threw it out. Um, How much, and this is not not in any way to blame them, this is a sort of cause and effect thing, how much do you think that attempt to protect you from, essentially from racist violence, was related to your going to a white majority university, joining a white church, and for a while actually being quite dislocated or disassociated from the Black Pentecostal tradition, even maybe from your own family? Mm. I mean, the only person I blame is myself, you know? There's a sort of type of responsibility that one has for your humanity to learn as much as you can, to do as best you can, to learn who you are, to know who you are, connect with where you come from, and to live in it, be shaped by it, but then also be open to other experiences as well. And I think going into these white churches, like in these white spaces, like so much of this space, like it's like a vacuum. It's like a utopia, like an alternate reality. And it it causes me or caused me to be like oblivious to like, yo, you can't do what other people do in this world and and and, and get away with it. You can't you can't you can't be what other people be in this world and and and, and get away with it. And like that's not necessarily like a blame of myself as much as a kind of indictment on this country that like really an indictment on this earth. Cause I'm sure the same thing happened in the UK where like you could be black in the UK and because of the color of your skin, like other people see you as not worthy of being given the best in life, not worthy of movement, not worthy of freedom, not worthy of breathing not worthy of just being ordinary and normal, but that your very present is a threat to what they believe to be safe and normal and right and good. And so when, 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 when that white cop, you know, you know, did that to me that night, you know, when he like questioned me that night or when that white man shot at me, shot at us that day, or even when white people criticized me when I was in their churches, it was all the same thread. It was like, your being here assaults my own idea of myself and what I believe to be normal. That ain't on me. That's on them. And I can't even blame myself for trying to like, for trying to just be normal, to do the thing that is normal in this world. And, and, and it just so happened that other people can't even deal with what that means for them or for us or what what that means to have me free and other people free in this country, like me and others, like I I can't blame myself for that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and things like that. Of course, I can blame myself for like, yo, yeah, I could have did better in this situation or that situation, but I don't even want to think about it in those frameworks of like, like like that 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 morality that responsibility as much as like, yo, it's about them. Like, 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 what about, like, like, what is so wrong with white people that to look that another person's freedom, you believe it to be your oppression? 
that another person's movement in the world, like Baldwin says that, like in that letter to his nephew, that when one star moves, it's like the whole universe is blown up and burned up. Like that's on that's on others. I, I yeah yeah that's about that's about as much as I can even say about that. Yeah yeah. And so you had this experience of being part of a white church, and it sounds like you know being rebaptized actually in a white church and mm-hmm. feeling very at home there and very kind of part of a community, and then that sense ebbing really it it seems to have been kind of increasingly punctuated by black people being murdered by the police you know every every few weeks every few months you know again and again it just kept happening and mm-hmm. the church that you were in didn't really want to talk about it or didn't know how to wrestle with it and eventually this kind of the tension <laughs> was too much and you had to leave and went on to write this book about your experiences it's called an american epistle and it the thread i think is so much about identity as a black person as a christian as an american and all these times in which it feels like one has to be primary over the other and our expectations are that we have to bury one under others and very often it was your identity as a black man how Mm -hmm. How painful or scary was the process of writing a book that is called an epistle that is so much grounded in faith, but is also so raw and so challenging? How much courage did it take to write what you wrote? Oh, it took everything. Even right now, there's a part of me that is even afraid of reading the pages. Like, I haven't read in my book in forever. Like, there is a part of me that, like... It's like, all right, I'm done with it on to the next project. Like, like there's a part of me that want to bury that. And it was like the book I knew I needed to write because there was no book like it. Like, I, I don't, I mean, I've re- I read a lot of books and I just, I mean, I have not read a sort of like spiritual autobiography, a spiritual memoir that, that, that feels in those depths that same way. Not saying that like, yo, like my book is like this like super unique book per se, you know, but, but I knew that there, it was one of the books that I needed to kind of get out of me. And it took so much courage because vulnerability and honesty really is what this book hinges on. Like it, it is what makes this book is vulnerability is honesty. This, this like turning over the self, like, to, to break the breaking over the open the self to look at myself and to realize like yo this is also a reflection of the nation this is also a reflection of my family this is also a reflection of us and trying to figure out how do we open this body up to the place where it can crack open but can be put back together again and become whole and have breath back into it mm. so in some sense the book begins in an oxygen mass but it ends in breath and breathing and the lungs fully functioning. Mm. And so when I think about like courage and how much courage did it take, it took everything. Like, and that's even a part of like, well, I feel like I'm struggling right now with this book on grief that I'm writing. It's <laughs> like my next project is on, is on grief and I'm really struggling through it because like, I'm like, can I do what it takes to write something like that again? 
knowing fully well that like, yo, I don't have to rewrite that book. That book is already written. I just have to write whatever I'm feeling right now in myself. But then like, yeah, it it takes, it took everything and it's going to take everything. It continues to take everything, Mm -hmm. you know, out of me, but I didn't have to do it alone. That was very beautiful about what it took. I wanted to ask you a question that Maybe it's just because I'm British. This always feels like a very private question, possibly more private than asking about someone's sex life, which I will not do. I wanted to ask (laughs) about your spiritual life. Now, you had this rich Black Pentecostal childhood and then a series, uh, you know, time in a white reformed church, which I think was disappointing and bruising towards the end. Oh, indeed. You're now studying, ministering, pastoring. We talked about Rowan Williams earlier. There were points in the book where I thought, okay, he's just going to give up. Like, Christianity is too hard. This is, he, you know, and feel free to share as much as you're comfortable, but what is your relationship like with those different traditions now with with God, with your faith? Yeah, yeah. I think for me now, like I take a part of everything that I've been through and I'm just building the pieces. You know, like my my son and I, we were playing the other day. He loves Thomas the Train. Um, and he sings like accidents will happen now and again. Like this song, he's just hooked on this song. Um, but he started like like we have many trains in the house and many pieces. And he started building the pieces and he'll take them out, he'll rearrange them, and then he'll turn it into this kind of circular thing and push his trains along and move it and shape it and shift it and it gets longer and goes around and he keeps doing that. Then he breaks it all up, puts it away, do it again, create something different. So I think of my spiritual life like that, that every piece of the many books and the many traditions that I've encountered over my life, it is like the train track, that there are various pieces that, you know, one day it gives me what I need. So I go to the text, I go to the Bible and it gives me what I need. But then another day, you know, I have to go to, you know, um, to a book or something like that. Or another day I have to listen to some music. And I think each one of these traditions is like that train. It's like, you know, you have all these pieces and you get the chance and, and, and the autonomy to decide how those pieces are going to fit together. And when they don't work, you know, you always got a chance to do it again. And so, like, when I think about, like, my upbringing, I'm very much still Pentecostal. When I think about being in the white Reformed church, you know, I think about, like, like, like I develop, like, a desire to like prove them wrong. And it, I mean, I really went on this like reading thing where like, yo, okay, I got exposed to like what they thought of us. And and then when I got to the point where I broke away from the tradition, I was in a really serious time where I was like reading and like, yo, I want to prove them wrong. I want to prove them wrong. I want to prove them wrong. And then I learned a lot through that where like I learned so much about what I did not want to become. And then, you know, I'm back in the black church space and now I'm back in the space where I'm like, you know, I'm at I'm at Emory and 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 I took a class and and um an intro to Islam and I realized that like yo this, this this Muslim faith is a beautiful beautiful thing and then I have friends who 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 tap into African spirituality and I have friends who are Buddhist. I'm like yo, there's a beautiful part about like faith for me that is now when I think about sharing faith, it's not as like an argument like Paul at the Areopagus where we have showed, like, we have seen and shown Christian faith is simply relating other, 
to other people as like wars to be won, like 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 people to be won, people to be convinced. But sharing faith is like Christmas time. It's like we all bring a gift to one another, and we want to give something to you that is from us that will help you remember us throughout the year until that time comes again for us to give another gift. And I think of faith like that. It is sharing the bits and pieces of our lives, the train tracks of our lives, bringing one another along and saying, you can bring your Thomas that you have over there, your train tracks, you can bring them over here and we can learn how to fit these pieces together. And so like James Baldwin shapes that faith. I mean, music shapes that faith. Just simply being in nature, you know, shapes that faith. I was thinking about the Alice Walker quote from The Color Purple, have you ever found God in church? And she's like, yeah, nah, nah, nah. Like any God I found, I brought that God with me. And I think in life that I people have brought God to me. I've brought God to other people. And we've continued this divine conversation week by week. That's my idea of faith and spirituality. <laughs> and yes, I'm very much a Christian. I'm very much, that's my tradition. I'm very much committed to the church and love the church and want the best for the church. But then also... As I've grown and matured, I realized that like, yo, I don't know if I'm concerned about heaven or hell. I don't know if I'm concerned about that. As much like Jesus, I'm very concerned about how we live together right now. Mm. Now, when Jesus tells his parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like, he always reminds us of something that's inside of our lived experiences. The kingdom of heaven is like a fig tree. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who lost a coin. The kingdom of heaven is like a shepherd who's lost the sheep. And I want to say, okay, the kingdom of heaven is like James Baldwin writing that letter to his nephew. Hmm. The kingdom of heaven is like going out on a date night. The kingdom of heaven is like um, making a pour over in, in a Kimbix. The kingdom of heaven is like Black women going to the Kambahichi River Collective and trying to develop language for black feminism. The kingdom of heaven is like Stonewall Rebellion in the 1970s. The kingdom of heaven is like sometimes like people getting out of a country and relocating. Mm. The kingdom of heaven are like all these various things in our experiences that remind us, as Jesus says, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and life to the fullest. And whatever the kingdom of heaven is like, it must be like each one of us experience the thing that make us feel most alive. Yeah. So. I want to end on, well, I hope it doesn't feel like it would be a difficult question. Going into this, I wondered if it might be, um, which is really about, relating to white Christians and I am one of those (laughs) Um, and uh, one of the threads we try and pull out is what other kind of skills habits practices that we need to see each other in the ways that we're different and there's many many ways we're different and in the ways that we disagree and there's many of those too as fully human as fully valuable in your lovely phrase, you know, as fully deserving of love. So I'd love you to start by saying, you know, you said you were in a phase where you're just trying to prove people wrong and that sounds entirely legit. How, what is your relationship with wider white Christianity like now? And bear in mind, I am unoffendable. Oh yeah, you good. 
Oh, I don't trust me. I don't mind talking about that at all. Um, and you know, talk about that if you wish. And then, what have you learned about courageous conversations across difference? What helps us when things are painful oh, yeah. and hard and knotty and fraught, yeah. and we get defensive and we get angry? Yeah. What helps? I think my relationship to white Christianity is complicated. It's probably the best way to describe it. It's like, you know, I have individual white Christian friends, and I do things with white Christian organizations. But I also know white people and I know white people much more than white people know me. And I know that white people in general, you know, as a whole, not individuals, but white people in general as a whole are more concerned about protecting a world that benefits their children than they are about dismantling a world that harms mine. White people as a whole. At what point? in the history of humanity as white people as a whole, just like men as a whole. At what point has these, individ- has these groups, these social groups that are tethered and bound to values and punishments, histories and myths and narratives, ideas and, and, and resources, when have those communities, those groups, utilized what they had to create a more loving and joyous world for everybody and not just for one group. There's never been a point in time. And one can answer that question and I can almost anticipate a rebuttal. Well, humans have always done this and things like that. And I'm like, you know, okay, yes, I give you that. That's true. But I'm not concerned about the humans back then. I am concerned about the humans right now. And if the humans back then have created these things and these like ideas and and systems have been conjured up in the imagination and have been sustained and protected by history, then what can happen when individual persons turn into groups and imagine the world again? What happens when that can happen as a daily practice to try and reshape the world? And so for me, that relationship is complicated. You know, I'm cool with white Christians. I'm not cool with white Christianity. I, 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 I'm just shoot it straight. Like, I don't know when the last time I've read a book by a white Christian outside of Ron Williams, you know, because I know that those people ain't writing for me or to me, you know. And, and I know that, they come, that many of these communities come with commitments that once we leave the church, so does the love. I know that like you're right about God, but you vote like Satan. I know that you would sing hallelujah, but then when a woman needs reproductive care, you call her a baby killer. How can I trust that? How can I trust a community who has no, given me no reason to trust? And how can I trust a community that has not been built for me or wants to build a world where both of us can exist as free and equal. I can't trust that community. I can't trust that tradition. I can't trust those individuals that I learned and we, 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 we're still friends to this day. And we, we trade, you know, ideas and we live as if like our lives are like normal. Like, like our friendships, our giving and taking of one another should be the norm. I mean, maybe we're trying to solve the world's problems, but we're not really concerned about that. 
concerned about living together as 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 best we can as equals because at the end of the day no matter how much any one of us talk about what oppresses us the fact of life is that we need one another and when i say need i'm not talking about charity i don't need anybody's money our community does I'm not concerned about your love or your like, but I am concerned about how you live with us. When we talk about need, it ain't about giving something that doesn't cost you anything. It is about fundamentally shifting your own idea of yourself so that you deal with you. As Toni Morrison said, you leave me out of it. And so then how does one live together? I don't know, but we've done it. And I want to live and learn from the people who've done it. And when I think about how do we live together and disagree and love, we do it courageously. There's nothing wrong with a point of view, but there is something wrong with holding it as if it is objectively true and right at all times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing wrong with believing that like, your ideas of the world is right. But there is something wrong when your ideas of what rightness in the world is actually harms another person and you evade that harm that it does and you try and erase that history and that truth and what it means for everybody. It ain't wrong to have your own culture, but it is wrong when you start to think that your culture should be everybody else's culture and they must assimilate to it and you believe that your culture is the norm. This thing is about arrogance and assimilation. And if we need, if we're going to live together, we got to get rid of both of those before we can actually be free. It's not the only thing we got to get rid of, but I think those are two meaningful things, arrogance and assimilation. And if we can do do away with those two things and the way we relate with one another, there's possibility for all of us. Dante Stewart, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to come to the UK. I think the thing I'm left with um, after speaking to Dante is a lingering thought thread about parenting and generational inheritance and the way that our identities and our sense of safety and our sense of belonging and how much space we take up in the world are all so strongly shaped by the care that we receive in our early years. And that um, dichotomy really of Dante's life that he had this incredibly and has this incredibly loving family and this incredibly loving and encouraging church environment that... um, you know, cheered him on and empowered him to use his gifts, but all the while was in the context of um, a society where the threat of racist violence was there at all times. And yeah, I did find the passage in which he's on the phone to his mum while waiting to see if a black, if a police officer would shoot him, essentially. Incredibly difficult to read that horror and terror for your children that certainly Dante's parents and 
he and other parents of colour, particularly in, in the States, I think, um, feel that line of, I don't have to work out how to save my children, I only have to love them, really cut me to the heart. And we all worry about our kids, I think, all parents. But I don't have to worry about that with my kids. And that's not fair. And I'm really grateful to Dante for um, helping that move from something I knew intellectually to something I knew emotionally. Um, and I'm glad I've got to talk to him a little bit about kind of white Christians and white Christianity. And I always find it's helpful to name that tension, you know, often in conversations with guests, um, I might be sort of personally representing a group that has caused pain or the guest has disagreements with. Um, and he, it was a really helpful thing for him to say there's a big difference between kind of individual white Christian friends and his problems with white Christianity in general. Um, and I still, I am pondering the, that kind of language that I think is both really helpful for naming some things that need naming whether it's white feminists or, um, you know, white middle-aged men, it's, you know, noticeable that most of the ones that are most relevant at the moment are white prefixed. Um, but also some of the complexities of using that language and aware of the defensiveness, frankly, that it can sometimes provoke in me and what I do with that and what's a healthy response to that and... Um, I'm thoughtful about that. That's all from me, from this episode of The Sacred with Dante Stewart. I hope you enjoyed listening. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and our production team are Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey. Our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. We're edited by Drew Hawley and The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos. Please do spread the word to friends and followers and don't forget to get in touch. I really do love hearing from you. Until next time.